At this point, it would be good to pause and ask what we think Jesus is up to here. There's so much to everything Jesus said and did, but remember, this season we're just focusing in on one thing, that Jesus seemed to be far more interested in helping these people think bigger and deeper about the challenges they were faced with than he was with giving them yes or no easy answers to things. So as we go through this really long day, remember what he's doing. After years of teaching, healing, and discipling, he has a few moments left to pass this message on to the world, to change the way we think, feel, and address everything, which is a pretty audacious task. Pulling that off requires more than just a few clever answers. It requires action. In fact, one could argue it requires the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. That's where we are heading. That's what this man who is learning how to see is figuring out as we continue this journey together. But in order to see how this entire puzzle fits together, we first need to visit another important memory from this man's past. A flashback to a moment he encountered the Sadducee from this episode in a way the public never has. A frantic argument erupts near his corner. The blind man hears the table and chair crash across the stone, echoing sharply. He cringes and shrinks. As a young man, he avoids conflict at whatever cost. He slinks until his back touches both walls behind him, willing himself to become part of the temple. He's had enough food, enough charity today. The booming voice of the Sadducee hits his ears first. Then the smell of perfume and incense follow, then the light clinking of metal adorning his clothes. The Sadducee assaults each sense before being seen, as if he must be felt in totality. Clearly, he commands great power and authority. Even the Pharisees avoid him. The voice carries joy and triumph. He's won another debate about the law. He walks with purpose and direction, fast enough to show his importance, not too fast to show weakness. His steps are firm and confident. Today, his walk is meant to tell everyone that he's won. But as the Sadducee turns the corner, the blind man can sense a change. His steps become softer, slower. Then he stops near the blind man. The blind man tenses up, but knows he's invisible to the Sadducee. The Sadducee lowers his face into his hands and weeps. The blind man fights the urge to run. He feels the immense burden of this man's bitter weeping. The pressure must be terrible. The pressure to stay in power, to never show weakness, to wear the mask of invincibility. Now, in the quiet and relative solitude of the edges of the temple, the dam breaks. The waters of fear crash over him in waves. The Sadducee lets it all go, thinking himself alone, not realizing that one person can still hear him. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. This season, one man learns the key to life isn't power or privilege, but a new way of seeing the world. In the distance, the Sadducee sways slightly. He must be wondering if now is the time to enter the fray, the man observed. 
any other onlooker would see the Sadducee as a confident religious leader. The man in the corner knows differently. The Sadducee looks across the inner temple at the rabbi. He's anxious to get started. He knows his argument has no flaws. He knows he can show the rabbi's teachings are absurd, especially that nonsense about the resurrection. He had learned the tactic years ago, highly effective. He remembers the first time he used it, years ago. But then, he shakes his head. He can't think about that now. He sees no way for the rabbi to get out of this argument. Still, he's nervous. He's seen how this man thinks and speaks. He has witnessed him take apart the others in the Sanhedrin. If he can end this spectacle, the whole temple will celebrate him. But if he fails, he can never live that down. He must win. He takes a deep breath, locks eyes with the rabbi. He strides forward. The Sanhedrin was a council of 70 men who had tremendous power in Jerusalem at that time. The council dates all the way back to the time of Moses. In Numbers 11:16, God tells Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stance there with you. The idea was Moses needed help keeping everything in order. Instead of trying to do it all himself, he should find men, because that's how the world worked back then, and put them in charge of keeping order. Our story takes place about 1,500 years after the original command, and the Sanhedrin is still going strong, which is really important for this story, because in a few days, Jesus will be brought before them, and that will ultimately lead to his death. Now, out of the three major sects within Judaism, the Sadducees are by far the most political. They're the aristocrats, always having their hand in all things political. They would frequent the temple and try hard to keep good relation with Rome, not because they liked Rome, but because they wanted to be in control. So they took up the majority of the seat in the Sanhedrin, which means they ultimately get to make most of the decisions. Today's story is about a Sadducee the one who posed a brilliant question to Jesus in the temple that day. This man was intelligent, wealthy, and probably a big fan of the power his position allowed him. Teacher, the Sadducee ventures, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. The rabbi smiles as if he anticipated the next move. The Sadducee hesitates at the look. Does he know what I'm about to ask? He proceeds carefully, choosing each word precisely to make his point. Now, there are seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. Since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to each of the brothers to the seventh. The man in the corner begins to wonder if the heir will ever return to the temple. The crowd tenses once more. The Sadducee has pointed out a logical flaw. As a Sadducee, he doesn't believe in the resurrection. Why should I? I see no evidence of it in the law of Moses. So the logical flaw puts the rabbi in the corner. Finally, the woman dies. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven brothers, since all of them were married to her. The Sadducee smiles and breathes easier, proud and sure. Certain he had tricked this rabbi, 
the crowd around them is silent. The disciples are still. Everyone stares intently at the rabbi. He stares off in the distance again, as if he's listening to a far-off voice. One key to good debate is understanding the phrase burden of proof. While both sides are throwing facts and thoughts back and forth at each other, one thing they're trying to accomplish is to successfully put the burden of proof on the other person. In other words, you want your opponent to be in a situation where they have to devote all of their energy to defending their position so that you can play offense. Now remember, the Sadducees took a very literal approach to scripture. They didn't believe in the resurrection or angels or spirits or anything like that. So this Sadducee brings up a logical flaw he sees in scripture. Because if there is an afterlife and Moses is right, the woman would awkwardly be married to all seven brothers in it. Which means Jesus has two options. One, he either has to admit Moses is wrong, a terrible choice given the present audience, or two, he has to admit there's no afterlife. Meanwhile, the Sadducee doesn't have a dog in the fight because he doesn't believe in the resurrection. He's throwing the burden of proof on Jesus. It's a well thought out move. He must be feeling really good about himself right about now. But if you're picking up on any patterns here, you probably realize that Jesus is pretty comfortable being put in the corner. One, because he always has a way out that nobody else can see. And two, because he cares really deeply about human beings. In fact, I think he cares more about the people in the debate than he cares about winning the debate. So the corner is an opportunity to help everyone think a little bigger about everything. The disciples, in their usual position, look as calm as they ever have. Only one man in the temple is more at ease. The rabbi. He seems to be enjoying the silence left by the Sadducee. Finally, he breaks it. You are in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God. And with that, the rabbi has stunned the Sadducee, stunned the whole temple. Even his disciples shift forward. The man in the corner takes this as a sign something new must be coming. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God has said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The smile on the Sadducee's face fades faster than the sun setting past the city walls. The look on his face tells everyone that he was not expecting that response. He would need time to process what was just said. He looks the rabbi in the eyes. The man in the corner notices the lightness in the rabbi's face is gone. He matches the authority of the Sadducee. The gaze carried with it power that won't be ending anytime soon. The Sadducee nods and slowly backs away. No one moves. No one speaks. No one can believe it. Okay, so first of all, what a brilliant way to introduce a Sadducee to this revolutionary idea of resurrection. 
that God is the God of the living, which means darkness is simply a backdrop for light to shine. And when things seem to be at their lowest point, when the addiction appears to be winning the war, when the anxiety is crippling, when the depression has you on the floor, that is the very moment something new is knocking at the door, ready to spring forth and bring new, fresh, abundant life. Like a glass of cold water for your thirsty soul. It's a pretty big topic. So we devoted all of season two to talking about all of the incredible ways Jesus communicated that message to us. But this season, we're looking at another layer to what Jesus is up to. We're looking at the way he communicates and has these difficult conversations. What else is going on here? That seems to be the question Jesus is always asking himself. He seems to have this keen awareness that there is always more happening just beneath the surface. So instead of weaseling his way out of situations, he masterfully turns arguments into vehicles to dig. Jesus once called his disciples to be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. And these days that's starting to make a lot of sense to me. If on one hand you aren't clever and creative, the world will take advantage of you. But if on the other hand you give in to the temptation to fight back, you won't get anywhere. You'll just be spinning your wheels. Einstein's famous words ring true. It's just that Jesus said it first. Be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves, as if to say don't try to fix a problem with the same consciousness that created it. Wisdom and love are much bigger and better avenues. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means we apply ourselves and put in the hours to grow in wisdom. And then it also means we sit with people and listen. It means we actually care about what people are going through and learn to have thick enough skin that we can sit in the tension, but soft enough hearts that we can love the person on the other side of the conversation. It means we should be kind because every person we know is fighting a battle we know nothing about. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. To find out more about the project, visit our website, storiesinscripture.com, follow us on Instagram at storiesinscripture, or on Twitter at SIS Project. And please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes.